Hello there, Vector Podcast, Season 2. And today I'm super, super, super excited to have a reappearance of, of Connor Shorten on Vector Podcast. We recorded like a year ago, about that time. Uh, some things changed. Uh, he is a research scientist at Samai Technologies, the company behind VV8. Here you can see an episode with Bob, and here you can see the episode with Connor as well. Um, and back then when we were talking, uh, Connor, you've been a lot into basketball. Do you still play basketball? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still play a little bit. And I'll add also to that that I think you also have a podcast with Eddie and then Laura, also in the in the queue of we Yeah, we'll add that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And and I remember like you've been um, big on computer vision, uh, data augmentation back then. And and your first like uh, guinea pig task was, uh, you know, some capturing baskets in the basketball game. And <laughs> I wonder if you continued working on that at some point. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think about it every now and then, but I've been so captivated by the natural language processing and the text search. Honestly, I still think about image search a bit. But um, yeah, the text search to me is just, it's just so exciting. that It feels like there's so much that you can do with it. And yeah, it's really been, it's been an intense year. I've learned so much and I, I think it'll be a totally different podcast with respect to like what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I actually love to start also by asking you, what do you feel uh, you've learned in this year that has changed something fundamentally in how you perceive vector search today? versus back then a year ago uh yeah that's a big question i <laughs> i think um definitely with weaviate i've learned a lot about having like kind of the user focus the product focus um definitely way more engineering understanding of the distributed data system replication cap theorem all these kind of things so like the the knowledge of the engineering around it in addition to sort of the machine learning research about like how do vector representations get optimized with deep learning models and then you know, this whole retrieve and read research. And overall, the space has evolved in such an amazing way. And it's just really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I've been, I've been also following different things, reading papers, you know, implementing Clip. But I still feel like I miss out on so many things. And I really hope we will cover some of them today. Um, and um, we are on the verge of, I think, maybe witnessing a change in, in the search paradigm, you know, with chat GPT. I, I first, I wanted to sort of get your first reaction on this. Uh, <clears throat> obviously, you tested it. I also tested it actually with uh, when I published my recent blog post on neural search frameworks, and I and I was like just stuck on creating a title, and I asked uh, ChatGPT, "Can you come up with a title?" And it came up with a reasonably good title, and I actually used it without editing, um, and I read a bunch of other stories, you know, like, for example, how you can avoid uh, fines <laughs> for, for wrong parking and stuff. But, but, but then there is this discussion going on, you know, like how it may change search. But before that, what was your impression of ChatGPT? Yeah, well, I think like everyone else sort of in, in this, like reading about, say, Google's Flan model or you know, the, we've been kind of reading about a lot of these large language models, but we haven't actually really gotten to use them. I think uh, Facebook's OPT model was on Hugging Face and I played with that. And back, in, back at the time, I was mostly like um, the few shot learning part was like the part that was so exciting where you could, you know, give it like four examples of a task and then it could just instantly learn the task. And that's like pretty surprising for people who've been doing supervised learning optimization for a long time and 
So it was mostly my thinking was the future of learning, but this chat GBT thing, this reinforcing learning from human feedback, this like, I mean, the way that it can talk is just mind blowing. It's, I am so amazed by it. And I think, yeah, it, it's really unlocked a lot of thinking about the importance of prompting to me and what prompting means. I used to think that was just kind of like a task description idea, which it still kind of is, but it's like the nuances of, of it are so much. And yeah, I'd really love to like dive into this topic of large language models and search. And I, I have a few different dimensions of how I'm kind of thinking about these two things relating to each other. But since I brought up prompting, I kind of want to stay on this one quickly. Um, so um, Bob and uh, Jerry Liu showed me this thing called GPT index and GPT index has this strategy for prompting GPT for summarization. It has, a, it has other things, but this is one thing that just really stood out to me. And there are like two strategies you can use to uh, summarize te long text with the large language model. You can either create and refine where you go paragraph by paragraph and you say like, you start out by, please write a summary of this long text. You'll receive it paragraph by paragraph. And then it iteratively updates a summary. Or you can have this tree where you, you know, you chunk it up like, you know, as a tree and then you couple it like recursively and then build up the summary that way. So this kind of thing about like, how we use these large language models, all of it is so interesting. And so I guess kind of, uh, yeah, let me pass it back to you. And I'm curious, like, um, how do you think large language models will change search? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still kind of learning it. And I, having, you know, built search engine before vector search, you know, using like TFIDF, basically, I knew the cost of doing it wrong, you know, or sort of focusing too much on precision and then paying a huge bill uh, because of that. So like our search engine, for example, back in the days when we indexed on sentence level and alpha sense would eat something like half a terabyte memory. And, you know, memory was never cheap. Like it was very expensive even back then. And so we had to figure out ways to retain precision not lose recall or maybe even increase recall because there was a problem with this precision oriented search and and stay within the budget right so when i think about language models myself and i also worked at silo ai at one large client you know applying these models at web scale the problem at web scale is that you really need to go sub second and not just sub second you need to go like 10 milliseconds or so because all of these adapt because you have so many components in the search engine, it's also multilingual, it's also serving a specific country, you know, with that specific um, latency requirements and stuff. And, um, and then there is indexing, how quickly you can index things, right? Because you may also <laughs> face bottlenecks there. So this, these are the things that I keep thinking about. But also the thing that we talked uh, a year ago in the pot in the same podcast, Vector podcast is that, uh, you know, the models like trained by Microsoft, for instance, I can hardly imagine deploying them mm -hmm. today in my pra practical setting because they will have like billions of parameters. Mm -hmm. And so they will be probably slower. And also how do I fine tune them? How much server capacity I will need to fine tune them? And, and so that's why I, I thought, you know, from the discussion with Malta Peach, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he, he pointed me to the Atlas paper mm -hmm. uh, where they basically are able to, with a few examples, fine-tune the model so quickly and it will have substantially less parameters so it becomes more practical you know both on fine-tuning side and also on serving side and these are the topics that i keep thinking before i enter the 
is it chat GPT? Is it sexy? Is it cool? Is it answering <laughs> my questions? You know, can I actually deploy it and not have angry faces from DevOps saying, Hey, you just crossed all the, like we are low margin on search and you are just, you know, way above that. So sorry, we cannot deploy this. So these are the questions I'm thinking about a lot. Yeah, the, the, I think there's a couple of things to unpack and no one's helped me develop the abstraction around the end-to-end -end search framework more than you. So thank you. So with the with the pyramid diagrams and these kind of things, it's so helpful. And, and yeah, you, you mentioned like the approximate nearest neighbor, then one up you have where I see is the information retrieval layer where you have the, you know, dense vector search, BM25, Splayed, Colbert, that layer. And then at the top you have like what I think is going to be the chat GPT layer. That, that's like that would be my current predict. And we're going to talk about neural search frameworks. I think yeah. more on the Weaviate podcast. So we'll really <laughs> dive into that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, the um, yeah. Well, maybe to to stay a little bit. One of our favorite partners that we've been working with is Neural Magic, and Neural Magic is doing uh, sparsity inference acceleration. Where they've recently one of their papers is about getting the 175 billion parameter GPT model to run on a single GPU. Uh, I know that, you know, you can probably compile these large language models on like NVIDIA Triton server and, and do it that way. But I, d I think that this sparsity acceleration for CPUs is just incredibly exciting for that particular dimension of it. And yeah, I think what you said inspired so many ideas. That I'm not... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I sort of like, uh, like what I value in your approach is that you run probably like a basketball player converted into a marathon runner with the same capacity you have to play a game, mm. uh, you know, that you basically run super quick and fast and long distances, you know, on the research side. And I love this approach really, really, because it, it opens up a lot of uh, opportunities. I, I sort of like, because I come from the engineering background, yeah, I did my PhD, but it was like 11 years ago. So I, most of my time I spent in production, you know, great systems. And mm -hmm. every time you just try to move a little bit, like, okay, let's add this. And oh, the cost is this. Oh, sorry. Okay. It will take me now to two more weeks to index my content. So mm. can we afford this? What is the use case? So you trickle back to like, almost like product level management. And so you will get these questions inevitably like, okay, why are we doing this? Like what, what's the actual trade-off? What, what's the benefit of bringing this into production, right? And, but at the same time, I'm fascinated by this. I mean, this will not stop for sure, right? Would you agree to that statement? Yeah, I think, um, and there's, uh, so I, I know Hugging Face has recently published their, they open source the data set they did with Surge AI on getting these um, human annotations to train the re reward model and the reinforced learning human feedback strategy. So I think there'll, there'll be, an open sourcing of the data of the data that you need to train the models, and then yeah, I think pretty soon there'll be open source versions of it. I think OpenAI. Um, I I'm very curious about this like kind of data flywheel idea, where by open sourcing the model, they spend a ton of money on letting you use it for free, but then they get <laughs> the data of how you want to use it. And so I'm very curious how that leads to more to a better model. My PhD advisor is a world class expert in class imbalance, like understanding that machine learning models they do not perform well on long tail. You know, if you have an imbalance data, so it's a lot of like the bias discussion, things like that. So I'm I'm curious, maybe it helps with the long tail getting all this data. Yeah, it's still not exactly how it will get better. I think one thing I've said previously is like there was this paper from uh, Emily Bender and um, 
caller is the last name. I'm sorry, uh, but anyway, it's called on meaning and understanding in big data, and it, it makes this argument that it's like language models by predicting the next token will never achieve meaning because it's like an octopus underneath <laughs> the ocean of two <laughs> stranded islanders, and it's just mimicking their language, but. If, it, if something like a bear is to show up on the island and it goes, help a bear, then the octopus is like, oh, I don't know what a bear is. So I can't help you anymore. <laughs> yeah. But I think what we're seeing with the reinforcement learning thing is that it's like, it's acting. It's There's, there's this other paper called Experience Grounds Language. It's about you, you need to, act. it's like the levels of sort of uh, developing meaning. And one of it is like about the importance of act, acting in your environment I'm, I'm also, I'm, I'm kind of going on a rant here, but I also see like this causal inference stuff and uh, Judea Pearl has this ladder of causality where uh, it's, you act, you make interventions, but then the, the, at the top of the ladder of causality is you can understand uh, counterfactuals. And so that last part, I have no idea how that's going to be achieved yet, but I clearly chat GPT is now like acting. So it's different from the yeah. predict the next word thing. Yeah. I think what it, it, coming back to chat GPT, like what, um, impressed me maybe the most is uh, so i had i had this problem uh, I, I was i was working on billion scale in a search algorithm with with a group of you know, researchers and, and engineers like almost a year ago so i invented this this algorithm i called it candy <laughs> like <laughs> of course you know not not meaning my surname <laughs> but in any case with a k um it's all open source on github i'll, I'll make sure to link it and so the, the problem was that it, it would work on 10 million vectors it would work on 100 million vectors but it would choke on 1 billion mm -hmm. it would basically run out of memory uh and and i did it entirely in python right so maybe i i should have chosen in retrospect some other language but in any case i wanted to make this work um i couldn't i ran out of time and i ran out of compute resource because it was given to us by microsoft um for a limited period of time so what i did is that i pasted that code into chat, chat GPT and I said, yeah, mm. first of all, I tried to, to paste the whole thing, but it said, well, it's too long. So I had to focus on the specific part where I think the, the problem, you know, kind of lurks. And, and it gave me the answer. It said, okay, maybe try avoid using NumPy arrays as much as you do, try to pre-allocate them, try to reset them. And actually I did that. I just didn't paste that portion of the code which was doing this. So the, the system didn't know that, but it, it was on the right on the right track. But then when I did it a year, uh, sorry, a day later, the answer changed. The question was exactly the same, but the answer changed. And that kind of made me really like, uh, what's going on? Like, is it learning as it goes? Can you explain this part? Like, have you seen this in his oh, behavior? Like with stochastic generation of the yeah. chat GPT? Sorry, I was like, I was trying to follow along with the, I think we were going to talk about like approximation error with the ANN search as we scale it. And I didn't know we are coming back to the chat GPT. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, the, uh, yeah, so it's like a, it's like a tree decoding where uh, it, it has a probability density on the, length of the vocabulary and you can take several paths through that tree for what you're going to output and uh, you'll often randomly sample through the through the tree if, if does that make sense like um yeah 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 it does yeah. but i mean the answer was kind of like in some sense these two answers were complementary to each other right and and maybe mm -hmm. i could go on and say hey what do you mean by resetting can you because it didn't provide any um code examples it would just say reset oh, oh. and i was like what do you mean by reset i don't have such a method like like so i i think that that was maybe impressive part of chat gpt and mm -hmm. um 
just to close off on that, there was a recent discussion on on relevancy and matching tech Slack, where a lot of these search people sit. Uh, there was um, there was this argument against Chat GPT that let's say if you go um, you know use uh, DuckDuckGo to, today, you will mm. see the links, right? You can go and examine the links, and you can actually verify the information to some extent. Maybe not to full extent, but to some extent. In Chat GPT, you can do that. There is an answer. That's it. So it it's it's quite a jump from being able to kind of seemingly check the is it trustworthy to well you have no way to do that what do you think of this aspect yeah that's brilliant i it makes me think about like well very broadly it makes me think about artificial general intelligence compared to super intelligence sort so to say and like i think about the artificial general intelligence like because OpenAI, they've published web gpt and instruct gpt so instruct gpt is like the reinforcement learning from human feedback part and then uh, web gpt is like the like the whole idea that we're super excited about at weva where you search for context to append to the input and then it, like if you say like please uh ground your answer in this information and then it's a paragraph about like how the bm25 algorithm works like i use this personally to help <laughs> me get to hybrid search and understanding it and so like if you give it the context it's so much better and so I think I suspect that ChatGPT under the hood does something like a Google or a Bing API search, and, and um, so it's like general. But um, yeah, this idea like so 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 then this idea of super intelligence because I, I I've been like, can I use ChatGPT to help me write like you know blog post, survey papers, things like that are relevant for trying to be a master of search, and what I need from it is more so like citation recommendation, right? Like I, I need it to go into like uh, Leo Boistov's publications yeah, yeah. and parse it out for me and help me understand what he's done. So it's like the specific information. And then, yeah, the real, I mean, you.com also has a really brilliant thing where it's a search engine on this panel and then the chat GPT on this side. So it's yeah. like a user interface problem, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, but, but, but I mean, maybe even, yeah, I, I totally agree with you that user interface definitely creates the bias. Uh, how we, like, how you use traffic lights today. They go like red, you know, yellow and green. They don't go upside <laughs> down, right? And like, if you see an upside down, you will, you will think, well, this is the wrong uh, traffic light. I, I'd rather not cross here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But like, so kind of like similar here, like with the search engines, we are used to seeing you know, URLs and, and being able to click there. But mm -hmm. of course, if you take Google or I guess Bing does that too, they also pre-generate these answers, answer boxes, right? So you can, you can click there, but I don't think you have a URL to verify, you know, the source of, it, of this information, if I'm not wrong, you know. Yeah. So they're already playing with incorporating this knowledge from a language model. Right, and mm. they 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 look at you, and of course they also want you to spend more time on their page, which is probably not good. But we'll not discuss that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so they don't share the traffic further. But but the thing is, you know, they still play with the idea. Okay, what if we try to answer not just with the URL and summary, but actually with the actual thing, right? With the actual answer. Oh, so that comes into like the extractive versus abstractive, and like whether you want the question answering models that classify the answers in the context. Yeah. And yeah, I think that still has a place for sure. I mean, it's super lightweight. As I mentioned, Neural Magic, they just did a sparse uh, question answering model that can run on CPUs super fast. And yeah, I think that approach is also just going to be more cost effective for 
a while. It, yeah, exactly. Uh, but you mentioned BM25, and I'm I'm curious. Like I've I've been trying to approach this hybrid search topic, but I think you went ahead <laughs> already. So, and I was just wondering, like, what's your take on this topic? Like, can you a little like intro it to our listeners? But also, why do you think it's a good idea to to build like a hybrid search? You know, combining keyword retrieval with with a uh, you know dense retrieval. Yeah, awesome. I, I'd start by saying this has just been like the most satisfying project I've worked on since I've joined Weaviate and just being a part of this team. And it's been, you know, like a big team working on hybrid search and it's just been an incredible experience. So I, I guess starting, yeah, the motivation is BM25 has this, it builds on term frequency, inverse document frequency by adding like this binary independence model in the IDF calculation. And then you also normalize it for the length of the document. There's just like these subtle differences that make it different than TF-IDF, but you could also use TF-IDF in hybrid search if that's what you were after. And uh, so then you also have the vector search and then you have this rank fusion. So so we look, we found this paper where they have seven different strategies for rank fusion. It's like RRF, Borda, um, I don't know, come some, but in the end, we just went with RRF reciprocal rank fusion, which is just, uh, Eric has recently published a blog post that shows the equation and just tell some of our thinking around it, but it's where you just combine the ranks compared to say combining the scores. Cause you know, BM25 has a score particularly and vector search has like a distance that returns. So you might look at some way of like linearly or non-linearly combining those scores. And I've done some experiments with, with kind of my thinking around it was like, okay, what would be like an optimal alpha per query? Would that be, you know, maybe like a conditional model? Like, so I tried this with the few shot learning of GPT-3 where you, you run a few examples of the optimal alpha and then you try to see, uh, you know, how would you like to weight BM25 and dense vector search given this query and see if that is productive. But I found, and this is a very interesting thing because I think people have this idea that BM25 is like very interpretable, but in my experience, it hasn't been that. I, I When you do, when you're doing longish queries in long documents, and maybe we can talk about long queries or short queries, but I find that trying to decode why it why BM25 was better than dense search for some particular query, I find that to be impossible. And maybe someone will prove me wrong and I'll look forward to seeing that, honestly. But like there's this example that we have as you know, Eric was developing the Weaviate Air demonstration of hybrid search, where the query is how to catch an Alaskan Pollock. And the idea being that the dense vector search contributes the disambiguation of catch that it refers to fishing and that BM25 is specific to Alaskan Pollock. But I haven't been able to just like inspect that kind of behavior as I look through the beer benchmarks. It just, <laughs> I'm super excited <laughs> to talk about that and how we've been evaluating it. But yeah, let me let me pass it back to you and ask about your experience with um, BM25 or like the keyword and the dense search particularly, because then I'd like to kind of take the topic to just arbitrary combinations of retrieval methods, not just BM25 and say DPR yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I think um, I remember even before uh, the dense search appeared on the scene, we were um, experimenting with sort of like making TF-IDF, which is BM25 is like an add-on, like BM25, I think stands for best match. <laughs> so <laughs> period, <laughs> so salt, uh, <laughs> problem solved. Uh, uh, but you know, like one of the questions, that, the reason I love working with product managers and at the moment I am a product manager. So I took the other side of this thing. Maybe we can talk more about it in VV8 podcast, but you know, the reason I love talking to product managers is because they don't know anything. Maybe they don't know that much about algorithms as you, and um, they don't code. 
maybe as as much as you, but they do care. For, they are the stakeholders of the end result, right? So when they go out talk to sales or to the end users, they will not get a question which alpha you have used. Now coming back to your to your uh, example, right? They will say. Mm-hmm. Hey, I typed uh, cat three times in my query, and I still see that the document that mentions it once is at the top. How can you explain this? Uh, mm-hmm. I will try to link. Um, there is a, a consulting company. I think they're based in Boston, actually, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I, I just forget their name, KMV or something. Um, so they have a really great uh, presentation on Haystack Live, I believe. Um where they go super deep, and I recommend you watch it, super super deep on how TFIDF screws up our understanding of how things should work when they don't, you know, <laughs> and they go by, you know, how many times, you know, the word cat uh, is mentioned in the document versus how many times it's, it's, it's mentioned in the query, and you can do all these combinatorial, you know, combinations. And then they kind of like explain what you would do to kind of solve it, right? Mm. Um, and you you basically develop this intuition. Another another thing is that I found useful, and it's also mentioned in the relevant search book by Doug Turnbull and uh, mm. Jerry Berman, uh, that you can you can use like if if you would use like um, let's say Elasticsearch or similar system or Solar, you could actually build a function which explains the query step by step. Right, mm-hmm. so it basically prints you the tree of how it actually came up with that fun, final answer, with that final score, and how you know that specific field. Like for example, at TomTom, we would I, I cannot go into much specifics what we do at TomTom, but basically it's geographic search, right? So you type some uh, destination, let's say an address or maybe a POI name, point of interest, like a shop, and uh, it, it's multilingual as well, right? So obviously your query may hit by accident sometimes in the wrong uh, language field. Mm. And so the only way to know this is to print that um, query execution formally, if you will, right? And so you will see, okay, ah, it hit in that, in that, let's say, I don't know, a French, uh, but I wasn't intending French. I was doing German or something. Why did it do that? And And you start reasoning about how did I... Um, create the tokens because when you tokenize your text, it's the same problem as in dense search in a way, like when you split text mm-hmm. into paragraphs or sentences, there you need to split the tokens. How you do split the tokens is dependent on how you model the semantics of what you are converting to, to a token. So you should not convert string to a token, you should convert meaning to a token. So if you capture meaning in that token, then you're done in a way. But then Coming back to your question, I cannot answer it fully now, but I highly recommend that that talk uh, by Kimvi. So you know, like you need to you need to see how term frequencies and inverse document frequencies play together, and also like in BM twenty five versus TFIDF, you have the term saturation issue, which is kind of mitigated in BM twenty five to some extent, right? So meaning that if you have two documents. Um, sorry, if you have two terms which occur, like one is like million times and the other one, one million plus one, TFIDF will be unable to distinguish between these two. But like BM25 is still sensitive to these things. And that's why it's a little better, right? So I think it solves this uh, term saturation issue. I don't know if I I answered your question, but... (laughs) No, no, yeah, I I think... um, 
so yeah, a couple of things. I, I really want to continue on this TFIDF versus BM25 and then add versus splayed to it. I think you're, I think um, this like pseudo relevance feedback, is that like the phrase I give to show that like, um, if you're searching with BM25, you'd say, if you had added this key, like it, you have the gold document and you're like, how would I have modified the query to produce that document? Is that it? So that's I think with- yeah, yeah so that's I, one way. Another way is to how would you modify the indexing? That's more in your control, right? So how you would modify mm -hmm. the indexing, uh, for example, you would, in some cases you can remove duplicates or something right so like you don't you don't need mm. them or something like that you can you can or you can split the term by numbers or something right if they happen to occur inside the term something like that i'm, I'm, th I'm making these examples right. up but i'm saying that you have more control in the indexing than in the query but in the in the query you can model like query similarity for example right so yeah oh that's super interesting yeah, the the way that you do like the text pre-processing, like stemming, stop word removal, all that, all that, that bag of all that. That's what I hope dense vector search can kill all that. I hope, <laughs> all, I hope you can just type anything and go into it. But, <laughs> yeah, and but um, yeah, and so I think there's this there's this thing called like decoding the latent space of a vector search model on that other idea of what query would have produced this where you would take the, um, you would train a language model on document query pairs, and then it would generate a query that would have matched the document. Maybe that's useful, but but I'm also, I'm very curious what you think about this idea of splayed vectors. So, so splayed vectors is like, you keep the mass language modeling head. And so you encode the thing into the vectors. So the mass language modeling head always only takes in a vector as input. You always would mask out wherever the mass token was and then send just that vector to the mass language modeling head that will produce like a sparse uh, distribution over what would replace it. And so I think the, the idea behind Splate is that you do that for each token and then you just kind of average all the vocabulary distributions. And that gives you a sparse vector that represents like the uh, like happy, euphoric, ecstatic, like the kind of synonyms behind it. Do you like that kind of idea? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I like that. Uh... The, the fact that I think we can step back from like this dense vector limitations and go back and try to capture what sparse vectors do. Because if I don't know if you watched the episode with Doug Turnbull, but he actually shed the light on, on this really well by saying, hey, if you, if you take the keyword retrieval inverted index, you deal with like probably hundreds of thousands of dimensions, unless millions, unless billions. Like in some of the indexes, we had at least million per term, right? So that's like million positions, most of which are zeros because this term doesn't occur, you know, in, in specific doc, but like doc ID, but like it occurs like in a few. And so in dense retrieval, you sort of like compress all of this to let's say 256 dimensions and inherently you lose the precision, right? So it becomes more like recall oriented rather than you know in sparse you you basically like what, what also amazes me in sparse is that this is probably like a little bit like going back to nn algorithms right so like an inverted index it's basically like a hash table so i have this term it's like order one lookup in the hash table and then you leapfrog you use this leapfrog algorithm implemented really well in lucene for example how you jump over long strides of consecutive doc ids because you don't really need to examine them in an ant query. Let's say if it's cat and dog, you know, you know that cat occurs in the document ID five, 
well, I don't know, like 10, let's say, and, and for dog, you are on, on, on three. So you can mm-hmm. leapfrog all the way to 10. You don't really need to check all this in, in term, because they will never occur together. So for or query, that's another story because that's a union, but for and query, it's an intersection. So you always need an intersection. And you can then stop early because you don't need 100,000 results on the screen. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm still actually curious on how would you know when to stop? Because what if you didn't find the document that is even more relevant than what you, you have seen so far? But that's like a matter of debate, I guess. But then you start scoring them and then sorting them by relevance, right? Yeah. Sorry if I'm a little behind them. So is this referring to how you can use like an inverted index to calculate the BM25 scores? So I would, you know, with my document collection, if dog appears, I you know, dog and yeah. then the documents so that when I'm calculating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like the, 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 I guess the comparison I wanted to make to dense search is that like an old vector search is that there on the, on the base data structure, first of all, you have a choice of the algorithm mm-hmm. you want to use, but let's say we take HNSW, which is the most mm-hmm. popular, right? Also implemented in VV8, I know, but like, you don't know when you enter the first layer, you don't know mm-hmm. where exactly you will end up. Like, so like with hash table, I know exactly when, where I'm entering and I know that I'm exactly in the right place. Right. And you know, you can also expand your query with synonyms. Then you enter more, more points in the hash table and you start traversing all of them in parallel and you come up with the answer. But in then search, you need to like, accept the uncertainty of navigating that graph. You don't know where it will land. It has certain limitations and trade-offs, and then it will pull up, you know, some nearest neighbors, and probably you should be happy with them because, oh, otherwise you need to do it twice or, or thrice and so on. You see what I mean, right? So, like, they, yeah. they are fundamentally different also on, on search side. Oh, in, like, the stochastic nature of the... Yes. Yeah, and I also I read this paper called OOD, Disk ANN, that talks about how much the distribution shift can impact the graph-based Vimana structure. So Vimana is like HNSW, but you've flattened it. So there's no longer the hierarchy of layers. It's like all in the same thing. And then you can put it on disk and it's like a little uh, cheaper yeah. to run, I think. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating. The whole indexing, the part that that's like kind of the the meat of this. <laughs> you know, that's where I yeah. see, at least, especially from Weaviate's perspective, that's where I see. And in addition to, you know, the UX and making it like a very developer friendly to well there's a few sides to it because there's, there's also the distributed database part and you know all the written in golang the concurrency control you know the replication uh, the backups like all these kind of things <laughs> that so it's, there's definitely like some things to it but that approximate nearest neighbor search and i know that you have this experience with you know i've, I've listened to a ton of your talks and you you introduced me to the ann benchmarks uh <laughs> when we first I'm met glad. so yeah <laughs> But yeah, that the, it, I see it there as being like three levels of errors that come that propagate up. There's the errors from HNSW and say product quantization. Then there's the errors from the vector representations to begin with. And then there's maybe the errors in like the question answering model. So if you wanted to have like, you know, natural questions, open domain QA, you're looking at like three layers of cascading errors that are sort of unrelated to each other. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You put it really brilliantly that you like, and I think if I may summarize it, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I anyway, to, you know, kind of wear this hat of the person who is creating this vector search pyramid and stuff. I'm not the yep. only guy doing this, but I keep doing this because it helps me mm-hmm. to stay comfortable in the topic and sort of, okay, I'm looking at it from this angle. And if you accept it, stay with me. If you don't, 
you know you may, you may you may as well augment it or something like you did earlier <laughs> with some levels in it uh, but you know like it's just uh, you need to accept that uncertainty like you explained and also that uncertainty that you know like in dscan and paper they they explicitly show that in hnsw you may have unreachable nodes Mm -hmm. And they counted something like 1,000 nodes were completely unreachable from any point in the graph. Like no matter how you search, how long you search, what are the values for your EEF and M parameters during index construction and search, you just don't reach them. And and that's I think that's somewhat similar to the inverted index search where you have like 1 million um, doc IDs per term how do you know when to stop? It's also like you may never reach mm -hmm. the documents that you should have visited, but you just deliberately decided to stop, you know, prematurely because you don't have time. You have to, you know, return the documents within, I don't know, 10 milliseconds. So you have to make trade-offs. Um, but they are ordered naturally in, in the increasing order of doc IDs, right? They're not ordered by, does this question answer anything? Does this, does this document know anything about cats or it just no, uh, mentions them in passing, you know? Does this mm -hmm. document knows anything about Twitter? Does it describe Twitter or it just says, you know, please contact me on Twitter. Here is my Twitter handle, right? Like complete noise. Uh, yeah. So. So you see what I mean, right? So like yeah, there yeah. are, I think in both approaches, like on fundamental level, on data structure level, we deal with this fundamental limitations. It's like gravity law. Like you cannot mm. jump off and, and, and fly to moon or to Mars, <laughs> right? <laughs> Without additional like thrust and devices and stuff. Yeah. So do, do, do you feel the same? Like does it resonate? Oh yeah. Well, firstly, thank you. That you've just explained that concept to me for the first time. I'm just, I'm just now live on the podcast understanding that concept. So, but yeah, it's a very, it's very cool. Like the, um, sorting the inverted index to prioritize documents, maybe by clicks, uh, like clicks would be the, the, like the most sensible thing if it's like web pages, so to say, and you sort the documents and then you, yeah, you have some kind of, you could probably calculate how much time you have to search and, and how much that lets you go into the, Invert index. Yeah, that's super interesting. I, I, I think it's very interesting for Weaviate with the with the hybrid search in the BM25 index because I, I know the inverted index has been explored because we have this uh, like neurosymbolic search where you would annotate properties like you, you're searching through. Let's say you have a billion sneaker images, but you've also labeled the color they are. So you have red is the color, and then you can use that to filter the search. So there's definitely been some foundation in pre-filtering and integrating uh, these kind of symbolic inverted indexes with HNSW. So it's not like the first time Weaviate's ever exploring that, but I, yeah, there's definitely nuances with the BM25 because of the cardinality of how many terms you have. Like with the document, I think you're splitting it, I don't know, 300 words, right? Like 300, 300 words per property. So the, just the size of it. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, starting to go into the thinking around like the sizes of things, it inspired me when, when you're mentioning the compression bottleneck from sparse to dense, I was thinking like, okay, let's say we have 384 dimensional vectors that have 32 bits per uh, vector position. Like what is, is that, is that, is that 384 or 32, 384 <laughs> to the 32, <laughs> you know, like that, that's still a massive combinatorial space, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and, and you said, like, is it even 
the model that captures everything we need to capture, right? It, it, mm -hmm. All of these are numbers. Of course, it's kind of number representation of the model's understanding, well, understanding in quotes, of, of the objects that we index. Uh, but I guess, like, for me, like, um, and you're way ahead in this, I feel like that uh, with VV8 development, like, um, of me, you know, what matters to me when I was like a search engineer day to day is what tools, not necessarily tools as in specific programs, but like tools as in algorithms, approaches, I have to control the process, right? So if somebody mm -hmm. comes up and says, hey, can you look in this query? Can you debug it? First of all, like explain queries, one brilliant way of doing it, and that's where you start. But then once you understood, aha, there is a problem that it hits this field, or I give too much of a boost uh, in this situation, what should I do? So you start like tweaking these parameters, and you have these tools in your hands, right? You can do that. In vector search, I, I don't know. Like I have like probably fine tuning as one tool, right? So like mm -hmm. if Clip stops working on these images, I can go and mm -hmm. fine tune or BERT. Um, but what else do I have? Like I can also tune some parameters in HNSW or DSKNN or so or something. I can make all these thousand nodes reachable like they did in DSKNN. I can choose disk over RAM if I want to save on you know on cost and stuff. But mm -hmm. what else do I have as a control to actually go and debug and fix that specific query? Like what has been your experience on that or maybe thinking? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think you've named them all. <laughs> I mean, um, I, I know I've seen like um, uh, uh, like the tuning of the EF construction, as you mentioned, with HSW. And I guess something that I'm really excited about with these beer benchmarks, and maybe I can introduce it now because I think it helps with this idea of model selection in terms of the user's perspective on how can I debug my system, how do I fix my search system? So the beer benchmarks is it's about diverse text retrieval. So, you know, it's like Arguana, NF Corpus, Trek COVID. There's the difference is instead of saying that the search image net is going to be MS Marco, which is, you know, like 10 million Bing passages and like a million labeled queries. So it's like the image net idea of like this general source of info, like image net is like a massive collection of images labeled in a bunch of categories. So it's like, is it's like, is MS Marco the search image net, but it seems like instead we're going for diversity with beer. And I think also if we well, if we want to talk about intent, intents and instructions further, I think actually beer is, a, I think beer had another, there's latte, like L-O-T-T-E, capital T's in lowercase. <laughs> they, <laughs> right. they, go, they go beverages, right? So yeah. <laughs> beer and latte, that's yeah. cool. So there's that's like cool. an equivalent to beer. And then there's also miracle, which is for multilingual. So there's a lot of these like diverse text retrieval. And then, and then it's expanding where you would label it with the instructions as well. And uh, I don't remember the names of these data sets off the top of my head because it's very new, but I know this paper called Task Aware Retrieval with Instructions. And I think there's a model, an, another paper with a model called Instructor. Uh, so this idea where you also label it with the intent. But, but anyways, let me go back to the focus on like, how does a user debug the search system and say, how can I fix it? So the idea with the beer benchmarks, like one idea would be that we could test several different models and you could maybe say like, okay, well, I'm building a nutrition, uh, I'm building a nutrition search app. So I'm like, I'm like bodybuilding.com or something like that. And so you would look at the NF corpus uh, results and you would see the performance of the different models. And that would maybe help you take a different model off the shelf. But then what you're saying with uh, like fine tuning it, 
I suspect that fine tuning is going to be a super powerful lever. I, I think if you fine tune, like, and maybe later, <laughs> there's so many topics I want to talk to you about. But <laughs> like with yeah. the idea of, I've been building a, a, a WeVA demo of the podcast search. So I've been taking the WeVA podcast, parsing the transcriptions and putting them in there. And my temptation to like fine tune it and start thinking about this positive negative construction for that. I mean, I, I think in general with Weviate, we're kind of, you know, letting like, you know, we use open AI models, cohere models, hugging face models. And it's like, we're not really training the models, but it's just such an interesting thing to tune. I know Gina AI's fine tuner is extremely interesting that I, I do find myself like constantly pulled in that direction of like wanting to train models. Yeah, absolutely. I've been, uh, we, when we, um, when we presented MUVs at Berlin Buzzwords last year now, mm -hmm. uh, we actually said we also have MUVER, which is the component to allowing mm -hmm. you to fine tune a model. We, we kind of like don't have it for prime time, but I've been like really fascinated kind of coding a bit of that and, and, and checking how well it can, can work in a more generic, um, way, you know, because I think fine tuner, um, allows you to plug in several models, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and like, because different models have different inputs, they have yeah. different like setting to train and fine tune. And so you need to be aware of that. Like clip is a, is a kind of two tower in a way. Right. So you need, mm -hmm. you do need text, you do need the image. Um, but I, but I think I, I feel like coming back to the question, like what tools I have, I, I feel like fine tuning and I, and I feel like you agree to that, that fine tuning is one way that should be more available to the masses should be more available mm -hmm. to the users in a way that they are aware of this tool and they know, uh, you know, best, um, sort of like know how, how to use them and also pitfalls you may fall into. And I think yeah. this is what you brilliantly described like a year ago in, in the context of computer vision, like data augmentation, right? So like, mm -hmm. it's one thing that you can feed, uh, you can feed some manual examples, but how, how far you can go. And like in your basketball example, like you've been manually labeling some examples, like you run out of patience in a way, right? Okay, you can hire people to do that, but is that scalable? Probably not. And mm. also new trends come up. Like if you take a business specifically working on e-commerce or I don't know, full text document search, you know, things come up every week maybe, right? So like, mm -hmm. I don't know, Tesla releasing Cybertruck and you don't have it in the in the model. So it actually mm -hmm. like in your um, example, what, what was it with the ocean and the, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, I, I hear exactly like how to catch an Alaskan Pollock. And then let's pretend that Alaskan yeah. Pollock is a new fish. That yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, or like you, maybe with vector search, you may try to find what would, what could be the most similar object, but it may also be wrong. Right. Or, yeah. uh, in the case when the distance is so big that it's it doesn't make sense anymore to consider this as a candidate right so yeah so this is this is very interesting like and, and i hear that you you, you really want to like uh, dive into um fine-tuning topic as well right uh yeah right well that idea is amazing because there this argument and i also when i interviewed malte peach he he gave me these three reasons to favor the retrieve then read approach to large language models and one of which was this idea that you can swap out the information to update it with new information. Cybertruck becomes a new thing, and then you can put it in the context, and now the language model just has to retreat, uh, reason across the context. But then, as you say, the embedding model doesn't know about the new thing. So the embedding model you know, also isn't going to pick it up. 
and so, yeah, I think that continuous updating, uh, one idea that I'm just incredibly excited about, I haven't figured out how to make this work yet, but the idea would be you, you're, the ML ops problem of this is you need to re-vectorize your data set, which is, yeah. <laughs> if you Expensive. have like, yeah. <laughs> so, so the solution maybe is that you could vectorize like a thousand representative documents and my hypothesis is that the proximity graph from, I want to say Vimana more so than HNSW because it, I I barely understand graph neural networks, let alone trying to make it a hierarchical <laughs> graph neural network. But like if it's a if it's the proximity graph, maybe you can. It's like an it's like it's like a psychogan. It's it's very similar similar to like image to image translation or any kind of you know it's a, it's a vector space to vector space translation. And so you, you know, you input the vector, output the change in vector. And so can you vectorize like a thousand and then propagate that throughout the graph or throughout the corpus? And maybe that proximity graph has some kind of bias that facilitates the optimization task. Or maybe the graph neural network thing is too much overhead and you're better off just having like a transformer that takes in a vector, outputs a vector. But yeah, that, <laughs> that, this idea of like, how do you continually update your embedding models? fascinating I, yeah yeah especially the mlops aspect of it as you mentioned like if if we were to insert new neighbors into the existing graph right uh would that change uh it mm. to favor something more recent or would it like break something that we didn't want to break and things like but but in, in some sense if you think about coming back like we are still in the realm of this hybrid search topic in a way right if you look at bm25 um, OTF IDF approach, right? So if you compute, so your I, so your term frequency is only dependent on this document, right? So that's fine. It's kind of independent of all other documents, mm -hmm. but your inverse document frequency is dependent on the whole corpus, which is indexed in that shard, by the way, that's another like big topic, which is kind of like crossing the boundary of, is this just infrastructure issue? in slash engineering or is this kind of like research issue mm -hmm. and i and it's like it's it's fuzzy it's 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 uh it's a blend and um so for that shard you're gonna have that local idf unless you build a uh a higher level uh cache which mm -hmm. will keep track of each individual shards idf and roll it up to the global idf and like if you look at Apache Solar, I think, I believe they had a um, contrib module or something implementing this uh, where you can actually implement a global cache with IDF, which will live on top of the shard. And now you're coming back to MLOps, you need to make sure it never dies because if it dies, you go back to like shard level IDF. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes dependent on, okay, I have managed to stuff, stuff a lot of documents about cats in this shard mm -hmm. so the idf is like this and then i i stuff a lot of documents on dogs here so they become like unbalanced if you if you know what i mean mm -hmm. so they it's not a healthy mix of term um statistics in your collection right and and that will influence a lot of things like you may say in some cases it's okay but in some other cases it may not work if your query contains you know, both concepts and they're unequally represented somehow in your, in your collection. Right. So, so, I mean, does it make sense? I mean, so it's like, yeah, yeah. 
you do have limitations also and and th not limitations but maybe i should pose it in more positive way research tasks right so research challenges like <laughs> how, what should we do and i hope that in some sense dense search is pushing us to think more and more about this and maybe some things will backlash uh, from vector search back to the uh, uh you know classical keyword retrieval and and maybe some new data structures will even emerge to to tackle these things yeah, I think that idea that you're describing on the IDF caching, it's super interesting. I think it it is inspiring me just thinking generally about how we're trading knowledge on this thing in general and having this podcast and having this content and this communication and how we've, you know, done like our first iteration of BM25 and, and yeah, like learning so much about the index structure is really, really interesting. I was thinking about like, oh, well, how about displayed vectors? Could could we just kind of update the mass language modeling head to get the new terms? And would that be easier than this kind of global cache? I like mm -hmm. idea. Mm -hmm. And is it more forward thinking? And then, yeah, it's really interesting. I, th I think maybe one other idea is this thing called Colbert, which is like a token level representation thing where it's like, they call it late interaction where uh, first you do the, you know, the standard vector search, but then you keep the token vectors for each of the vectors. And, and then you do that. And then they've had efficiency improvements on that. So like, I think they, in the original Colbert, they, they've recently published this paper. Uh, I know Christopher Potts and Omar Kitab. I'm sorry, I don't know. Like, I'm <laughs> trying my best yeah, we'll to like, no, give everyone credit all the time. But, anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but in this paper, they described it like the original Colbert is like an 154 gigabyte uh, uh, index compared to like one gigabyte with other me methods. And it's so, so yeah, like efficient indexing. I, I'm definitely ranting a bit, <laughs> yeah. but it is like a big thing to unpack. There's so much depth to this. And that, and that's what makes working in this field so exciting is that there's so much opportunity, so much to explore. Yeah. 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 And so much unsolved as well. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know if you wanted to continue a thought. Oh, no, sorry. Yeah, I was just... But, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, we are branching out. But like, actually, one thing that you just reminded me, there was a... Uh, maybe I should start writing a book or something because like the moment I remember this, I should write a chapter and then keep adding and then publish it. Maybe you can be my co-author or something. Yeah, um, awesome. <laughs> but, but I was just thinking, um, it was... Was it like 10 years ago on Berlin Buzzwords, there was a presentation by one of the engineers at Twitter. I don't know if he's still at Twitter and I forgot his name. I remember he was German um, working out from San Francisco. And um, mm -hmm. he basically coming back to that issue with, you know, sorted uh, document IDs, right? Mm -hmm. um, what they did at Twitter, first of all, you know, the scale of Twitter is such that you cannot possibly store uh, um, Lucene index on disk and then go and retrieve it because, well, it's just way too slow, right? Um, what they did is that they moved the whole index into memory, right? So they had to rewrite Lucene to kind of like this memory-friendly data structure. And one thing they did in particular is that as tweets come in, each tweet is a document. It gets its unique document ID. And uh, they would append this new document ID to the postings list in the end, right? So for this term, so they would de decompose it into terms uh, back and then they would know, okay, I need now to update that specific terms posting list. So the posting list is just the 
array of doc IDs. So they would put that Twitter tweets doc ID in the end. And as the new searcher comes in searching tweets, they would read backwards from the end. They wouldn't read from the beginning of. So basically what they did is that they kind of like encoded the temporal nature of tweets and people want, and users wanting to search and view the tweets which are the most fresh. So like, like I don't know if like you're you're the heavy user of Twitter. I I do yeah. <laughs> use Twitter occasionally as well. But like, but you know, like on yeah. Twitter, like when I log in and I, and I check my um, timeline, like usually I see something super fresh, mm-hmm. and then I keep scrolling. But like, not like anti props to Twitter, but it's it's a nightmare to search on Twitter. Like when when I search mm-hmm. something I know existed like a week ago, there is no way for me to find it unless mm. I know the exact tweet ID, right? And so at some point I was even indexing tweets, actually direct messages um, I had with few people, you know, um, in Solar and then basically searching them. So because it was way faster than searching them on Twitter, because like if you have 5,000 direct messages, mm. scrolling through them will take half a day. So because they mm. keep loading and loading. So so basically what I'm trying to say is that they optimize the data structure for the nature of usage of Twitter in such a way mm. that they bias to the recent tweets and they mm. don't care if you will have to spend a day <laughs> retrieving like super old tweet, like it's it's like so minutia use case for them. For the majority <laughs> of users, 99% of users will only want to see and consume the latest thing. So in some sense, th- this is kind of the effect of optimizing to the usage. Like mm-hmm. what you say, we could optimize, you know, like Splayed or, or similar, you know, sparse LLM or something to mm-hmm. kind of like learn, you know, that li- latest beat and maybe there is a high chance of it being retrieved as well. So mm-hmm. we might as well bias the system to that. But then, of course, there is catastrophic forgetting thing and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no, it, yeah, it's not an easy problem to continually update the MLM head either. It, it would be maybe worth adding that this MLM head in Splay doesn't need to be like a billion parameters. Well, well Maybe a billion would be good, but it doesn't need to be a hundred billion. <laughs> but like, um, yeah, that's such a fascinating nugget of system design you just shared with the Twitter thing. And yeah, it's really interesting. I, I've seen this other company called Perplexity AI that uh, Aravind Srinivas is, um, I think he's a founder CEO of it. And it's cool because uh, he he was he worked on Curl with Peter Abiel on this contrastive representation learning for robotics, where they're, you know, they're doing the same kind of idea of vector optimization to learn a state space for robotic control. And so I think it's really cool that now he's working on the search space too, but uh, they had, it's like the other approach is like natural language to SQL uh, something like that, where like, instead of, uh, and I'm getting a little off topic, but it's like kind of related to Twitter and it's about like putting tweets into, you know, data stores and then parsing natural language queries into the SQL. But so that's like another idea, I guess, Mm -hmm. is like you would, parse the query yeah i think i've already explained it but what do you think about that idea like you you take the query and you turn it into an sql query in yeah and like that's yeah. the yes yes i know what you mean this is like it's very similar i think um deep set did that right so uh you can um or maybe it's opposite i'm not sure but like if you have a um 
probably the same. If you have mm-hmm. like a table, right? Uh, uh, you know, with fields and rows. Yeah. I don't know. Let's say list of mountains with their heights and and so on. So you can actually have um, a question: What is the tallest mountain in Europe or Asia? Mm-hmm. Um, you could turn that query in natural language into SQL command and say, mm-hmm. you know, select, you know, mountains from um, this mountains table, um, or, um, order by height, um, reverse, right, mm-hmm. descending, and so. Um, I like this idea, and in fact, actually, I, I've. Um, I think first of all, this is already doable, right? So, um, if I understood with like uh, with uh, DeepSet doing that in Haystack, um, <laughs> but but I also came across this idea during my PhD research um, because so so the problem there, I believe, was that. It was like um, <clears throat> these engineers um, working um, on building aircrafts. And so they had to read a ton of manuals. But once you read the manual, you still need to go and look up that specific number somewhere in the database, right? So so basically they do like multi- mm-hmm. multiple hop approach and that may take like forever. Like mm-hmm. you, first of all, you need to crunch through a ton of, uh, you know, text material and then somehow summarize it and then okay now i need to go and look up that that number in the database but what if you could ask a natural language question to the manuals then convert that to a sql command which would know to go and look up in that specific database table and -hmm. give you the answer so like the manual doesn't have it but it has some instructions how to find it Mm -hmm. and then you would kind of like convert that into through this meta language convert that into SQL and then get that answer, right? And this was like pre-dense retrieval mm-hmm. era, obviously, but I think I still feel like it has the merit to yeah. it. Like. Mm-hmm. I, well, I, I would, um, well, I guess two things. So I, I think first there's this problem where you search like for airline manual, some specific detail, and it's like in result seven, like it it almost got it. Like it's not like (laughs) not in the top 100, but it's seven. And to that problem is where I think this GPT index, uh, like recursive summarization or create and refine summarization, I think that'll solve that problem. And um, yeah, well, so I, I then coming back to this idea of natural language to SQL and like structured unstructured data, on the other end, you can also parse the tables into text. And so I've seen that done too. There's like wiki tables to text. And so me personally, my favorite application is um, is scientific literature mining and searching through scientific papers. And so you could parse out the tables to turn like the results tables to turn it into natural language. And you, I mean, there's so many fascinating things. So it's like with a knowledge, let's say like a knowledge graph. The idea of the knowledge graph is if I have Dimitri Khan, uh, host the vector podcast is a product manager at TomTom. I, with knowledge graph, I can, you know, I compress the re- the representation of all these facts into one structure compared to having the set of sentences. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Yeah. So maybe if I can kind of plug something I've done. Uh, so I have this paper that will be published pretty soon. It's about, um, it's in the Florida Atlantic university PhD. Uh, it's an interdisciplinary team with the college of nursing and a local healthcare system. 
So we have electronic health records that describe COVID-19 patients, and we're trying to predict survival outcome, treatment forecasting, prognosis, all that kind of stuff. And so the, the thing that we explored in this paper is let's switch from the structured tabular data to parsing it into natural language text and let's turn it into like clinical narratives or let's do this thing where you do if x if feature name equals if feature name equals then label right yeah so there's this paper from uh, the university of wisconsin called language interface fine tuning where they do that same idea but it's you know like the uci machine learning repository data sets so so I think I know that I've taken like a, a walk around all sorts of things. But like, no, it's, cool. it's cool. It's cool. I'm sure the listeners will be like, what? But, 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 but I know like it's, it's also what I heard from my listeners, for example, in the podcast is that they actually do use these episodes as an educational material. So that's why, you know, if we can stuff as many links to papers and your work, they can go and study that. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> I to summarize, I guess the question is like, how are we thinking about structured and unstructured data? Because <laughs> like, <laughs> like, uh, the deep learning systems, you could parse out the structure into unstructured, and then you have the transfer learning is really easy, right? Yeah. Yes. Or you can keep the structure, and then maybe you can learn a better representation thanks to the structure, and. With that question, my interest has been really heavily in these causal DAGs and this idea of uh, creating c structured causal relationships between variables. I still have no idea how that really, how you can take like Wikipedia text and turn it into a causal diagram. But I have an idea of like if, and it comes back to this AGI versus super intelligence idea. If I have a super intelligence and it's reading search literature, I wanted to have some kind of causal diagram of our current model of search stuff. So like it has some model of how BM25 is indexed, the limitations of it, displayed, this representation, this MLOps problem. It, it has like some structured representation of all these problems such that when the new batch of archive papers or tweets, you know, however the news is coming into mm -hmm. it or, ex or experiments, right? It looks at its causal diagram to say like, this violated my, this, this claim, like, because that's the thing you see a paper like autoregressive models as as uh, search engines, or you see like uh, what was the name of that where it's like transformers as a differentiable search index. Like you see some title like that that violates mm -hmm. your causal diagram of why things are the way they are, and that's what like inspires your interest. So that's that particular angle of it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I'm also thinking, and I haven't explored this topic myself yet, but. Um... Um, so let's say if you take a language model like BERT, which was kind of like you could say statically trained once on Wikipedia or news content, right? Um, but the world is changing every single day, right? Mm -hmm. your, your model doesn't. So what you could do is that you could introduce knowledge back to the model. And I'm still like on the, on the risk of kind of exploring this. I think mm -hmm. Neil Rammers talked about it. Uh, recently, like how you can incorporate knowledge in the language model. So for instance, what, like the way I see this before I even like read these papers, I could probably try to invent, reinvent a wheel is, is that, mm -hmm. so the language model might figure out that the question is about the president of the United States, that specific one, let's say Obama or something. But then the question is, uh, is Obama still the president of the United States? 
And mm-hmm. so now the language model is kind of like handicapped. It says, well, I actually don't have, last I know, like ChatGPT does that, right? Like mm-hmm. I was trained by 2021, so I have no idea what happened in 2022. Sorry, goodbye. But like it could actually <laughs> say, it could say, I figured out the context. I know roughly what you're asking. This is the person. I know this person. I know that. What, what the president means. I know the, the country, United States, but you're asking me a factual question. So what it could do is actually it could go and ask a knowledge graph, which is updated without recalculating the um, the embeddings, which is uh, solving mm. the MLOps problem, right? So it, it's, it's another data structure, you know, it's a knowledge graph. It, it's being updated as we go. And so it goes and says, hey, um, let's, Coming back to your question on, on structured language, like in, in graph systems, you also need to form your query in a certain way. So it forms the query in a certain way and traverses the graph and then checks, is Obama the president? The mm-hmm. answer is no. It goes back all the way to the maybe language model, I don't know, maybe some other layer and basically presents the answer to the user, right? Yeah. So um, that's just one thought before I even dove into this topic of incorporating knowledge in the LAMPs, I would probably think like that. Yeah, I love that you brought that. Uh, that knowledge graph, it, it's like, and that's kind of like GPT index as well as LangChain. I can't believe I haven't brought that up until now. We can talk about that more in the neural search frameworks discussion on the Weavia podcast. But like this idea of different kinds of external memory. And um, I don't know what's wrong with my brain today, but I keep like branching into completely. <laughs> but like, I don't uh, think it's wrong. I think it's the right <laughs> setting. <laughs> It's just not suitable with the uh, coding or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, like, so I was recently talking with Shukri, who just joined Weviate as well, about um, about this idea of metadata re-ranking. So one approach is you have the XGBoost re-ranker, where you take in the BM25 score, the vector distance, and then also uh, symbolic features as the input to the re uh, to the XGBoost re-ranker. Mm-hmm. So the thinking was okay, do we want to store this metadata in Weviate as well? Or do we go get it from Redis or a feature store or something like that, where we get that kind of property? And so it's like the knowledge graph idea connects to that because it's like, okay, are we going to build the knowledge graph in Weviate? Should it live in Weviate? Or should we plug Weviate in with something like Mm -hmm. Neo4j? Or or is it a top level controller like the neural search frameworks thing you're describing where it's, you know, something that hooks into Weviate and hooks into Neo4j, relational AI, Tiger Graph. I don't know all the RDF uh, ontology mm-hmm. technologies, but, you know, like it has separate and it's a higher level that picks between the indexes. So it's, yeah, it's like what kind of technology is built in Weviate. And that's not even really up to me. Like I just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But I, I think it's it's kind of fun to uh, brainstorm with you, like what, like we kind of like intuitively find these limitations together. And at the same time, these limitations may lead to future discoveries like on, on uh, engineering and research. And like w- when I was giving this keynote at Haystack, where by the way, Vivid guys were also present <laughs> and other guys as well. Um, um, like I I didn't I didn't feel bold enough to say this, but I, I think I will say this now at least that I feel like engineering and research are kind of like indistinguishable in the amount of intelligent um power you need to put into this to solve it because it's not, mm. it's not like given right like 
if, if this data structure inverted index is designed like this, and you do have the uh, the issue of early termination because you cannot like waste so many CPU cycles, then like okay, without reading papers, can you go and solve it? Like being just an engineer, so to say? Mm. No, you can't. It's like it's it's super hard. Like you need to start coming up with like new vector space model, which was invented when in 60s, 70s, I don't know. So mm -hmm. like, can you come up with like completely new model? It's, it's, it's equally hard um, as in research when, okay, you know that SOTA is now this, can I beat it somehow? But it's not like you are just beating SOTA for the sake of it. Maybe some people do, but like, I would take the stance <laughs> of, of not doing that. Like I would, try to solve an existing problem, right? So mm -hmm. I do want to surface, as you said, more relevant document to the top or maybe even a passage, maybe in a number. Mm -hmm. So I keep pushing for that. So both yeah. of these, to me, they're like, they require so much intelligence yeah. so that they become indistinguishable in some sense. Like what, what exactly are you now solving the MLOps problem? Are you solving the, uh, you know, the, the inverted index data structure limitation problem? Or are you solving, how do I retrain the embeddings? How do you retrain the model or fine tune the model? And I don't recompute the embeddings because it's way too expensive. Someone mm -hmm. needs to pay the bill. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so mm -hmm. does it, does it make sense? Does it resonate with you? Like what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, our CTO, Eddie and Delacker has written about product engineering and uh, like on this meta on this meta of like, how do these decisions get made? And it's like, I think there's a, a book uh, called uh, I've Changed My Office. I don't have a book shelf, shelf behind me. I used to be in podcasts and I'd be like, it's that uh, yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, I still have it actually. Yes, in the podcast. <laughs> but it's like, uh, it's like Ask Your Developer is a title, something like that about uh -huh. uh, and well, okay, so that maybe maybe i got a little off top but this idea of research and engineering i think the the scientist is very like metrics oriented in a different way like the the engineer like the 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 diversity of the tests and the data collection is more important when you're the when you're the scientist sort of uh the, yeah the the engineer needs to build like smoke tests sort of whereas i see the scientist needs to like have a very rigorous data collection kind of cuz that's sort of how I see the distinction in responsibility, sort of, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah. It does actually. Yeah, you 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 uh, you gave a very good distinctive, you know, feature. What I was trying to say is that, like in engineering, you still have a plethora of options, like combinatorial <laughs> explosions in certain oh, cases. Uh -huh. There are also mundane parts in both of these, right? So, <laughs> like we are not talking about them, but like they do exist. But like you do have these points, like okay. Should I branch this way or that way? Should I step back and rethink? And and that's yeah. But I mm -hmm. agree. I agree. You, you you gave a really good example of like in research. I do care about data so much. In engineering, mm -hmm. it's probably the quality assurance department that is going to worry about okay, what data we're gonna feed into the system to try to kind of maybe break it and see mm -hmm. the limits and where it breaks. What do we need to fix? Um, or is it kind of like stable waterproof enough to release, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. So, but yeah, I agree. And I think if I can stay on this a little more, I think this like generalization testing, like the industry of quality assurance, but for deep learning is, is going to be a really fascinating. I, I'm like excited, like how I, I think when we first met, you had written this, um, 
not all vector databases are equal. And I, I thought that was so insightful because it was like a you told the story of an emerging market and and that was so interesting. I really look forward to seeing like the story of the emerging market around generalization testing. I think like um like with the beer benchmarks, that kind of thing where it's like you create some million scale data set and have the NDCG recall precision with all these queries. I think maybe also this idea of like A-B testing with models is going to be more popular. I was uh, when I, I went to NeurIPS this year and there is this talk from Dr. Juho Kim about interaction centric AI and how that might differ from the first paradigm of model centric AI, where, say, you judged a image generation model purely based on like inception score for shade mm -hmm. distance to mm -hmm. feature spaces in real images. And then to data centric AI, which is like I think snorkel AI is very responsible for like branding that term and making it so popular. But it's like you're really focusing on the curation of data. Like your language model is like Mosaic ML's latest PubMed GPT. It's about like you have this particular data and you like clean it and you make it mm -hmm. awesome. <laughs> and then yeah. I think interaction centric AI is like a new way to evaluate models where it's like A-B testing driven kind of, or like how quickly can you perform a task? I don't know if that, if I've gotten too yeah. off topic, but. No, I think it's, it's exactly the topic to focus on if we, are serious about you know putting these things out in production like you, you do need, you do need to have and provide an evidence to the stakeholders that and to yourself that this dust hold water and we can release it and it's not going to show something you know indiscriminate to the users that they will be completely you know puzzled and stuff or maybe <laughs> you know there are all these numerous examples when uh, like Google search when they, I think, incorporated some distilled version of birth when they would flip the meaning and they would say, yeah, mm -hmm. you do take this medicine, but actually in the you know, prescription, it says you do not take that medicine <laughs> or vice versa, you know, so because it, it, it's not sensitive to mm -hmm. negations and stuff. So like, I, I, I totally agree. I'm, I'm uh, with you on that. Like, how do we QA quality mm -hmm. assure, you know, that the systems that we release? And I think the... Uh, OpenAI's team did that brilliant trick in a way that they said, hey, here is the chat GPT, go test it. And they got like million users in the first few days mm -hmm. because they actually do need some extra <laughs> brains to, to yeah. <laughs> go and test in different like scenarios and, and see where it breaks. Or mm -hmm. Maybe it doesn't make sense anymore. So, yeah. It's my understanding that that's how like scale AI became the kings is that they, you know, like labeled data, uh, like Mechanical Turk, I think Surge AI is something that's emerging that I've been seeing. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, um, I was I was wondering, um, you, you also uh, worked on this podcast search and, and you had the opinion that Whisper has mm. certain bottlenecks. I, I wonder mm -hmm. if you if you want to like uh, tap into that a little bit. Yeah, so I'd love to tell the story. So uh, so it comes, the kind of story behind it is, uh, so Boris Power at OpenAI tweeted, uh, so they they cut the prices for the OpenAI embeddings and, and Boris is pointing out how cheap it would be to index a massive podcast like the Joe Rogan podcast. And so naturally I was like, hey, I have a podcast. How <laughs> about my podcast? But <laughs> and yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have Vector Podcast and we did also. But so I, I started to be, you know, I started doing this where you, you know, you take the audio files, then you put them into Whisper. I also tried like uh, Descript is something that I like a lot. I've been using Descript for a long time for editing uh, 
videos. And so it's like, you still, cause you, it's very, the podcast transcriptions, you still want to edit them a bit. You, you have like, uh, and like, like if you were, yes, yeah, hey, I'm pausing right now as I'm talking, no. <laughs> <laughs> but the transcriptions, it's not quite what you want to like index to this idea of like, how do we create a knowledge base from these podcasts? Because these podcasts are so like, we've covered so many topics and it's so, it's kind of easier to do it like this than to be writing all this down. And, the, and also it's very collaborative, uh, like the podcast, you get more people involved. It's like a community building yeah. thing. It's, so yeah, that idea of creating knowledge bases out of podcasts, like what, what, what would you rate your interest on a scale of one to 10 of having a vector podcast? I mean, I would love to join, to join the, <laughs> you know, to join the geek here. So, because I do like, I was rewatching the episode with you done a year ago and you mm -hmm. were like exploding with knowledge, right? Like in a way you are branching out a lot today as well, exploding with knowledge because you, you read all these papers, you try things, you share, you know, like Google collabs and stuff, but like, I, like, how do I tap into this knowledge? Like, it's it's very synchronous, right? I have to, like, there is no way to, like, random jump into, hey, where did he talk mm. about, you know, that model from Microsoft? Like, uh, I, I don't know, unless I have the time code, I don't mm -hmm. have a way to do that, right? So, yeah. Yeah, and I, I what th that's what inspires me so much with I want to fine-tune these models so badly just on the uh, turn-taking as the positive labeling and yeah oh. i think can you expand a bit more on that what do you mean uh okay connor says i want to talk about the turn taking dimitri can you expand on that more on what that means connor okay it's like, the, <laughs> <laughs> like this is how you do the positive pairing oh that's cool it's like that's sequentially cool. like that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and like if you want to have more examples of what connor said like you could like augment with connor's uh, statements uh, like sentences yeah Yes. Yeah, so, and just the, I feel like the potential of it is crazy. I I also think like we're going to see it like hooked into say Spotify or these big platforms that organize podcasts. And I think it'll help you like discover, like, cause something else it's like, I love how you do this vector search podcast and I'm also doing a vector search podcast. And it's like, who else is out there doing like maybe a recommendation podcast or like, you know, mm -hmm. like it's like this kind of discovery of other people because podcasting is very like collaborative it is a medium right like it it's not like you you can't do it by yourself no like yeah. it's like it's it's almost like the thing um like stand-up comedians or anyone who's presenting you do need the audience because mm -hmm. you simply do not generate the 3d-ness of your thoughts in absence of people like mm -hmm. it's very hard to do and, and the same thing happens here right now like when we exchange like I, like i have like a full shade of these notes and stuff right awesome. so i wouldn't be able like what like do i do you know these things do i know some of these things it's, you know it's, <laughs> it's like evoke, evoking in your memory but like coming back to whisper like just to get it right mm -hmm. you you're saying it's still a bottleneck in your opinion in what way Okay, well, I'd hate to be like quoted as saying it's not good. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> but, no. It's, your, it's your opinion, which I, which uh, I value. You know, it's not. Yeah. So, so if you're creating a podcast search app, you like there still needs to be a little more parsing. I, I don't know if you need to find. I don't know if you need to correct one and then mm -hmm. fine tune. Because so, I've also been playing a little bit more about ChatGPT, and as as I've been learning about this kind of like sequential prompting from GPC index and Langchain. 
about learning like how you can get ChatGPT to maybe clean up a podcast transcription. But there's like still a pretty fat, pretty difficult yeah. manual uh, cleaning effort in the middle of that. Yeah, actually, I, I can I can resonate with that. Like I've uh, I've worked uh, with one startup helping them to do speech uh, to text, right? And mm -hmm. um, first of all, one one issue is very similar with low resource, so to say, languages in NLP is that if you don't have a model trained on a lot of examples or maybe they've been trained on some TV shows and you are doing an, a user speech stuff, uh, you know, the topics are different, the style is different, everything is different, and so it breaks. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was also alluding to the topic of fine-tuning there. But, but exactly what you said, the problem was the output was so noisy mm -hmm. that I had to write an, what I called like an NLP layer, which would go in you know, change things. For instance, if you say 25 mm -hmm. and it actually spells it out with letters, you you will co collapse that to a, a number, you know. But yeah. sometimes it would, it would do it in, in problematic places and you're like, oh, no, don't do that. Don't do it here. <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. so like, <laughs> so it's like an a, a, aftermath, you know, thing. Uh -huh. And you would wish that the model having enough context and knowledge about the world should do it write as it transcribes rather than you do this as as a aftermath yeah yeah exactly i'm thinking the same way and he's like it's a text layer afterwards yeah 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 exactly, exactly. yeah super cool and then, uh, maybe like as we're wrapping up the podcast if you let me quickly tell you about ref and sort of the pivot yes. into recommendation it, well so to start off ref is about an ex is, is about utilizing weaviate's data model a little more so Uh, Weavier's data model is designed where you have different classes. So this class could be uh, products. This class could be users. So, you know, like tables in SQL, where you have different data objects, like the high level ideas of designing data objects. And then you have graph relations between them, like user liked product. Mm -hmm. So the, the simplest thing is that then you can represent the user as the average vector of the products that the user liked. And then you can rank with you can re-rank with that, or you could just search with that vector. That that could be your search vector, or you could have some other search like uh, restaurants in Boston. And because I live in Boston, and you know, you know like, or oh, sorry, I, I didn't mean to give away Boston in the query. Say I my <laughs> my query is uh, Italian restaurants, and because it sees that Connor likes restaurant, uh, I don't know, like some North End Italian restaurant, something like that. Like it knows that I'm in Boston, so it will it can personalize just using that vector to re-rank to only show me restaurants in Boston. Because if you show me a restaurant in Chicago, it's like useless yeah. to me. So yeah. so so that's kind of the first idea is this kind of like average the vectors to get the centroid. But then there's this idea where, and I learned this from talking to Martin Grutendorf about his bird topic library, and I highly recommend people check that out. It's such a cool way of visualizing vector spaces, but this like HDB scan clustering. So he was describing the difference between HDB scan and K-means clustering for how they produce centroids. But And so HDB scan has this very cool like density clustering thing, but regardless of the clustering you use, I, I just, I like HDB scan a lot. But so let's say we get three centroids, like I like Nike shoes, Adidas shoes, and Jordan shoes, and you have these three centroids. Uh, so, so you can use those three centroids as three average vectors from their respective clusters to re-rank with as well, have some kind of diversity in results. Uh, and then there's just this thinking around, so so yes, there that, that's the, the recommendation pivot. And then there's this idea of like top level index, and I'm stealing that kind of terminology from GPT index, 
because what GBT index does is to uh, represent a long document. You have, again, that tree summarization where you could say this is four, obviously, right? And it's four and you summarize these two, summarize these two, and then summarize one. So you have this like top level index where you search through this layer first and this layer. And so it's like, if you're asking a question like, what was Barack Obama's legacy? And then you have the symbolic filter of the titles of the Wikipedia pages and you have where title equals Barack Obama, like that top level search will like super simplify the search space because now you're just looking mm -hmm. in the Barack Obama article mm -hmm. compared to all of Wikipedia. So I think Reftivec also in the use of uh, having constructing top level indexes by, you know, having document has passage, has passage, has passage again in the WeVA data model. It, it can be, it's just like, I think it's a really interesting way that we're trying to use this cross-reference graph structure to move embeddings through the graph. Another idea, and I know I'm like doing a thousand ideas, but like, <laughs> could be having like a graph convolutional network where, okay, so you have user liked product has brand. Uh, okay, let's just make it a three class graph like that. And mm -hmm. so you have this, this graph and you need to send the, um, you need to aggregate the embeddings through the graph. So now it's like, Mm, should we just average? Should we try some kind of like nonlinear graph convolutional network? And the graph convolutional network being beneficial because a graph ne network can handle like arbitrary number of inputs. That's sort of like, isn't like a fixed input size, like transformers, you would like zero pad it to 512 tokens or the convolutional network is, it's like kind of flexible, but generally it's like very flexible to the number of inputs. And so I hope that was an okay tour of Reftivec, and I know I've gotten a little distracted. No, it's, ama it's amazing, actually, and I th I hope we can maybe discuss in, in some subsequent episodes as well, because the topic of personalization is also very interesting. And like for someone who says, okay, we just have these fixed vectors computed from the content, how the hell we can actually bring the mm -hmm, user mm -hmm. and you, this is what you've described. This is what I perceived from it. I think this is an, an excellent topic and this kind of opens up opportunities for vector search to uh, appeal to, to the, uh, you know, search engine builders or maybe some other, engines like recommendation and so on mm -hmm. um but um i think we, we have a ton of material I, I really love talking to you maybe before we close off is there something you wanted to announce to to the audience of vector podcast oh uh, yeah they, so we have toured a lot of things but i really hope that uh, you'll check out the weviate beer benchmarks repository so this is a recent effort around hybrid search coming back to that it's been a long conversation i feel like that was forever ago but like the the hybrid search thing has been tested with the, with the beer benchmarks. And um, so there's, there's like scales, there's like small scale beer, medium scale, larger scale. So right now there's the larger scale and some medium scale, I mean, smaller scale and some medium scale. And uh, right now we're working on the backups, but this is all based on, so we V8 1.15 had backups where you can, you know, back up the we V8 instance to have like a, a file that lets you just restore the Weaviate instance. So you don't need to import the data. It's like, you know, it's like with the face indexes, how you can just mm -hmm. read index. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so now what you can do is you can just load the Weaviate index. And so why this is so exciting to me is I've, I've always been really interested in like hugging face data sets or papers with codes, papers with data, like this organization of data. And I used to think with like Weaviate's Wikipedia demo that it would need to be like live, always hosted. Like you click, try it now. And then it's like, boom, you're in the console and you can query it. But I think with these, with this repo where you just download the Docker file for Weaviate, it's like three, it's like two lines of code where you do Docker compose up and then mm -hmm. Python restore the name of the data set you want. And I think that's just as easy as, um, 
having some always hosted demo. So, so yeah, I hope, and I think the other thing is with, with hybrid search, another thing that excites me so much is it's like, if it's vector search only, it's like, you could argue, well, why don't I just use the face index then? But I think mm -hmm. because it's got the BM25 and the vector search is starting to offer more value with like how it can help you with your information retrieval research. Uh, yeah, and in general, that's just something that is very important to me is trying to figure out how to connect with the information retrieval research. I think the beer benchmarks presents a really exciting way to do it. I do have some ideas on how users would be interested in it because I think the idea of beer benchmarks is maybe you look at it and you say, okay, NF Corpus or Trek COVID or Natural Questions is like very similar to what the app that I'm building. But I think with ChatGPT, you could probably loop through your documents and generate queries gold. Like those would be the gold documents for those queries. And, and you can do the same kind of evaluation testing where, as you mentioned, you want to see how that approximate nearest neighbor error cascades into the representation error and see what that means for your particular problem. So I hope people check yeah. it out. <laughs> I hope find it interesting. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's a, that's a ton. Super packed. Thanks so much. Uh, what, what I like, in this discussion compared to, to the uh, last one a year ago is that you continue to explode uh, with knowledge and I, I hope you will continue doing that. Thanks so much for your time today, Connor. And uh, yeah, looking forward to talk more. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thank you so much, Dimitri. I feel like the Vector Podcast is like the Super Bowl of <laughs> Search Podcast. And I'm so oh grateful. My God. To I'm to honored. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you so thank much, Connor. Yeah, enjoy your day. Awesome. Bye-bye.